Chapter Eleven, Part One of Little Brother to the Bear by William J. Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Chapter Eleven, Part One Hunting Without a Gun. The man who hunts with gun or camera has his reward. He has also his labors, vexations, and failures, and these are the price he pays for his success. The man who hunts without either gun or camera has, it seems to me, a much greater reward, and has it without price. Of him, more than any other Nimrod may be said, what a returned missionary from Africa said of his first congregation. They are a contented folk, clothed with the sunlight and fed by gravitation. Hunting without a gun is, therefore, the sport of a peaceful man, a man who goes to the woods for rest and for letting his soul grow, and who, after a year of worry and work, is glad to get along without either for a little season. As he glides over the waterways in his canoe, or loafs leisurely along the trail, he carries no weight of gun or tripod or extra plates. Glad to be alive himself, he has no pleasure in the death of the wild things. Content just to see and hear and understand, he has no fret or sweat to get the sun just right, and calculate his exact thirty-foot distance, and then to fume and swear, as I have heard good men do, because the game fidgets, or the clouds obscure the sun, or the plates are not thick enough, or, beginning of sorrows, because he finds after the game has fled that the film he has just used on a bull moose had all its good qualities already preempted by a landscape and a passing canoe. I have no desire to decry any kind of legitimate hunting, for I have tried them all and the rewards are good. I simply like hunting without a gun or camera better than all other forms of hunting for three good reasons. First, because it is lazy and satisfying, perfect for summer weather. Second, because it has no troubles, no vexations, no disappointments, and so is good for a man who has wrestled long enough with these things. And third, because it lets you into the life and individuality of the wild animals as no other hunting can possibly do, since you approach them with a mind at ease, and, having no excitement about you, they dare to show themselves natural and unconcerned, or even a bit curious about you to know who you are and what you are doing. It has its thrills and excitements, too, as much or as little as you like. To creep up through the brulee to where the bear and her cubs are gathering blueberries in their greedy, fun way, to paddle silently on a big moose while his head is under water and only his broad antlers show, to lie at ease beside the trail flecked with sunlight and shadow and have the squirrels scamper across your legs, or the wild bird perch inquisitively upon your toe, or, rarest sight in the woods in the early morning, to have a fisher twist by you in intense, weasel-like excitement, puzzling out the trail of the hare or grouse that passed you an hour ago, to steal along the waterways alone on a still dark night and open your jack silently upon ducks or moose or mother deer and her fawns. There is joy and tingle enough in all these things to satisfy any lover of the woods. There is also wisdom to be found, especially when you remember that these are individual animals that no human eyes have ever before looked upon, that they are different every one, 
and that at any moment they may reveal some queer trick or trait of animal life that no naturalist has ever before seen last summer just below my camp on montagamon was a little beach between two points surrounded by dense woods that the deer seemed to love better than any other spot on the whole lake when we first arrived the deer were close about our camp from the door we could sometimes see them on the lake shore and every evening at twilight they would steal up shyly to eat the potato and apple parings gradually the noises of camp drove them far back on the ridges though on stormy nights they would come back when the camp was still and all lights out from my tent i would hear cautious rustlings or the crack of a twig above the drip and pour of raindrops on my tent fly and stealing out in the darkness would find two or three deer generally a doe and her fawns standing under the split roof of our woodshed to escape the pelting rain the little beach was farther away across an arm of the lake and out of sight and sound of our camp so the deer never deserted it though we watched them there every day just why they liked it i could never discover a score of beaches on the lake were larger and smoother and a dozen at least offered better feeding but the deer came here in greater numbers than anywhere else nearby was a great wild meadow with dense hiding places on the slopes beyond where deer were numerous before the evening feeding began in the wild meadow they would come out to this little beach and play for an hour or so and I have no doubt the place was a regular playground, such as rabbits and foxes and crows, and indeed most wild animals, choose for their hours of fun. Once, at early twilight, I lay in hiding among some old roots at the end of this little beach, watching a curious game. Eight or ten deer, does and fawns and young spike bucks, had come out into the open and were now running rapidly in three circles, arranged in a line, in the middle was a big circle some fifteen feet in diameter, and at opposite sides were two smaller circles less than half the diameter of the first, as I found afterwards by measuring from the tracks. Around one of these small circles the deer ran from right to left invariably, around the other they ran from left to right, and around the big middle circle they ran either way though when two or three were running this circle together while the others bounded about the ends they all ran the same way as they played all the rings were in use at once the two small end rings being much more used than the big one the individual deer passed rapidly from one ring to the others but and here is the queerest part of all of it i did not see a single deer not even one of the fawns cut across the big circle from one end ring to the other after they were gone the rings showed clearly in the sand but not a single track led across any of these circles the object of the play was simple enough aside from the fun the young deer were being taught to twist and double quickly but what the rules of the game were and whether they ran in opposite circles to avoid getting dizzy was more than i could discover though the deer were never more than thirty yards away from me, and I could watch every move clearly without my field-glasses. That the game and some definite way of playing it were well understood by the deer, no one could doubt, who watched this wonderful play for five minutes. Though they ran swiftly, with astonishing lightness and grace, there was no confusion. Every now and then one of the does would leap forward and head off one of her fawns as he headed into the big ring, 
when like a flash he would whirl in his tracks and away with a of triumph or dissatisfaction. Once a spike buck, and again a doe with two well-grown fawns, trotted out of the woods, and, after watching the dizzy play for a moment, leapt into it as if they understood perfectly what was expected. They played this game only for a few minutes at a time, then they would scatter and move up and down the shore leisurely and nose the water. Soon one or two would come back, and in a moment the game would be in full swing again, the others joining it swiftly as the little creatures whirled about the rings, exercising every muscle and learning how to control their graceful bodies perfectly, though they had no idea that older heads had planned the game for them with a purpose. Watching them thus at their play, the meaning of a curious bit of deer anatomy became clear. A deer's shoulder is not attached to the skeleton at all. It lies loosely inside the skin, with only a bit of delicate elastic tissue joining it to the muscles of the body. When a deer was headed suddenly and braced himself in his tracks, the body would lunge forward till the foreleg seemed hung almost in the middle of his belly. Again, when he kicked up his heels, they would seem to be supporting his neck, far forward of where they properly belonged. This free action of the shoulder is what gives a wonderful flexibility and grace to a deer's movements, just as it takes and softens all the shock of falling in his high-jumping run among the rocks and over endless windfalls of the wilderness. In the midst of the play, and after I had watched it for a full half-hour, there was a swift rustle in the woods on my right, and I caught my breath sharply at sight of a magnificent buck standing half-hid in the underbrush. There were two or three big bucks with splendid antlers that lived lazily on the slopes above this part of the lake, and that I had been watching and following for several weeks. Unlike the does and fawns and young bucks, they were wild as hawks and selfish as cats. They rarely showed themselves in the open, and if surprised there with other deer, they bounded away at the first sight or sniff of danger. Does and little fawns, when they saw you, would instantly stamp and whistle to warn the other deer before they had taken the first step to save themselves or investigate the danger. But the big bucks would bound or glide away, according to the method of your approach, and in saving their own skins, as they thought, would have absolutely no concern for the safety of the herd feeding nearby. And that is one reason why, in a natural state, deer rarely allow the bucks and bulls to lead them. The summer laziness was still upon these big bucks. The wild fall running had not seized them. Once I saw a curious and canny bit of their laziness. I had gone off with a guide to try the trout at a distant lake, while I watched a porcupine and tried to win his confidence with sweet chocolates. A bad shot, by the way. The guide went on far ahead. As he climbed a ridge, busy with thoughts of the dim, blazed trail he was following, I noticed a faint stir in some bushes on one side, and through my glass I made out the head of a big buck that was watching the guide keenly from his hiding. It was in the late forenoon, when deer are mostly resting, and the lazy buck was debating, probably, whether it were necessary for him to run or not. The guide passed rapidly. Then, to my astonishment, the head disappeared as the buck lay down where he was. Keeping my eyes on the spot, I followed on the guide's trail. There was no sign of life in the thicket as I passed, 
though beyond a doubt the wary old buck was watching my every motion keenly. When I had gone well past, and still the thicket remained all quiet, I turned gradually and walked towards it. There was a slight rustle as the buck rose to his feet again. He had evidently planned for me to follow the steps of the other man, and had not thought it worth while to stand up. Another slow step or two on my part, then another rustle and a faint motion of underbrush, so faint that, had there been a wind blowing, my eye would scarcely have noticed it, told me where the buck had glided away silently to another covert, where he turned and stood to find out whether I had discovered him, or whether my change of direction had any other motive than the natural wandering of a man lost in the woods. That was far back on the ridges, where most of the big bucks loaf and hide, each one by himself, during the summer. Down at the lake, however, there were two or three that for some reason occasionally showed themselves with the other deer, but were so shy and wild that hunting them without a gun was almost impossible. It was one of these big fellows that now stood half hid in the underbrush within twenty yards of me, watching the deer's game impatiently. A stamp of his foot and a low snort stopped the play instantly, and the big buck moved out on the shore in full view. He looked out over the lake where he had so often seen the canoes of men moving. His nose tried the wind up shore, eyes and ears searched below where I was lying, and then he scanned the lake again keenly. Perhaps he had seen my canoe upturned among the water grasses far away. More probably it was the unknown sense or feel of an enemy which they who hunt with or without a gun find so often among the larger wild animals that made him restless and suspicious. While he watched and searched the lake and the shores, not a deer stirred from his tracks. Some command was in the air which I myself seemed to feel in my hiding. Suddenly the big buck turned and glided away into the woods, and every deer on the shore followed instantly without question or hesitation. Even the little fawns, never so heedless as to miss a signal, felt something in the buck's attitude deeper than their play, something perhaps in the air that was not noticed before, and trotted after their mothers, fading away at last like shadows into the darkening woods. On another lake years before, when hunting in the same way without a gun, I saw another curious bit of deer wisdom. It must be remembered that deer are born apparently without any fear of man. The fawns when found very young in the woods are generally full of playfulness and curiosity, and a fawn that has lost its mother will turn to a man quicker than to any other animal. When deer see you for the first time, no matter how old or young they are, they approach cautiously if you do not terrify them by sudden motions, and in twenty pretty ways try to find out what you are. Like most wild animals that have a keen sense of smell, and especially like the bear and caribou, they trust only their noses at first. When they scent man for the first time, they generally run away, not because they know what it means, but for precisely the opposite reason, namely because there is in the air a strong scent that they do not know, and that they have not been taught by their mothers how to meet. When in doubt, run away. That is the rule of nose which seems to be impressed by their mothers upon all timid wild things, though they act in almost the opposite way when sight or hearing is in question. 
All this is well known to hunters, but now comes the curious exception. After I had been watching the deer for some weeks at one of their playgrounds, a guide came into camp with his wife and little child. They were on their way into their own camp for the hunting season. To please the little one, who was fond of all animals, I took her with me to show her the deer playing. As they were running about on the shore, I sent her out of our hiding, in a sudden spirit of curiosity, to see what the deer and fawns would do. True to her instructions, the little one walked out very slowly into the midst of them. They started at first. Two of the old deer circled down instantly to wind her. But even after getting her scent, the suspicious man-scent that most of them had been taught to fear, they approached fearlessly, their ears set forward and their expressive tails down without any of the nervous wiggling that is so manifest whenever their owners catch the first suspicious smell in the air. The child, meanwhile, sat on the shore, watching the pretty creatures with wide-eyed curiosity, but obeying my first whispered instructions like a little hero, and keeping still as a hunted rabbit. Two little spotted fawns were already circling about her playfully, but the third went straight up to her, stretching his nose and ears forward to show his friendliness, and then drawing back to stamp his little forefoot prettily to make the silent child move or speak, and perhaps also to show her in deer fashion that, though friendly, he was not at all afraid. There was one buck in the group, a three-year-old with promising antlers. At first he was the only deer that showed any fear of the little visitor, and his fear seemed to me to be largely a matter of suspicion, or of irritation that anything should take away the herd's attention from himself. The fall wilderness was coming upon him, and he showed it by restless fidgeting, by frequent proddings of the does with his antlers, and by driving them about roughly and unreasonably. Now he approached the child with a shake of his antlers, not to threaten her, it seemed to me, but rather to show the other deer that he was still master, the great mogul, who must be consulted upon all occasions. For the first time the little girl started nervously at threatening motion. I called softly to her to keep still and not be afraid, at the same time rising up quietly from my hiding place. Instantly the little comedy changed as the deer whirled in my direction. They had seen men before and knew what it meant. The white flags flew up over the startled backs, and the air fairly bristled with the whistling, Eeeew! as deer and fawns rose over the nearest windfalls like a flock of frightened partridges and plunged away into the shelter of the friendly woods. End of chapter 11, part 1 Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee